the thing that I always really lean into is what we were talking about earlier, the notion that you're going to be terrible at things for a long time and you cannot let that stop you from whatever it is you're trying to do. I think that's the biggest hurdle that people feel like they have. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of Where Are All My Friends? I kind of like saying that. It's kind of fun. I feel like I got a ring to it now. Uh, This week with me, I have Ray Harkins. I'm stoked on this episode for a couple different reasons. One, this is one of the first guests that I've had where like we knew each other, but we really weren't all that close. And I more so just had a feeling that he had a good story. Uh, The reason I had that feeling is he does a whole lot of things that I respect a lot. And people like him, like you kind of just see the amount of work they put in and I almost feel like there's no way they don't have a good story. So specifically, he has a podcast of his own called 100 Words or Less. Uh, He's been doing that podcast for, I want to say the better part of a decade. I think it's seven years now, which is incredible. Like if you think about how popular podcasts are now, yeah, it makes sense. But like seven years ago, that wasn't a thing. So I'm really impressed by that. He's definitely had his finger on the pulse and he's built an incredibly cool podcast where he's had some really incredible guests on it. And again, it's too, it's like a focused on music podcast. So if you haven't heard it, check it out. Uh, If you have, I'm not surprised because it's a pretty iconic podcast. He is also a manager of producers. He works with a company that I like a lot called Tandem Management. He himself was in a band called Taken and they have a lot of really cool OG history and cred. And we talk about his touring days because it was like, it was kind of a different generation of touring. And he just has so much, he has so many cool stories about touring them that like you can tell on the episode, like blow my mind. So just like all around, he's kind of an OG with so many things. And for that exact reason, I love the episode because there are certain lessons that I feel are timeless. And he's the exact example of that. Like maybe he was touring in a different generation. Maybe he started his podcast early, but it all holds up and it's such a good product. And there's just so many timeless lessons that he has and does or applies um, that I just think apply to any genre and any person. It's just kind of like practice of being good people. So that is why I'm so excited. He has a ton of wisdom, just an OG dude. Outside of that, really all I have to say is if you do like the episode, if you're enjoying the podcast, feedback and sharing it on social media helps me so much. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, like the leaving the stars, writing the reviews, subscribing is massive. If not, just sharing it, like take that link, share it on social media. It's incredibly helpful. Uh, That's really all I got. Let's get into this episode. I had a ton of fun with it. I hope you enjoy it. I'm so excited that like we're like kind of just getting to meet each other because yeah. <laughs> I really respect what you're doing with the podcast. Well, thank you. <laughs> and I like I feel like there's so much for me to learn. And I, I think that it's really cool of you to like kind of pass the torch back down and be like, yeah, cool, random dude that I've barely met. Like, yeah, hell yeah, I'll do your podcast, whatever. Of course. Well, I mean, I <clears throat> the reason why so many people say yes to podcasts in general is because it's obviously it's a medium in which people can just talk freely and expose themselves in ways that they might not other in, in other formats because you're worried about, you know, getting stuff pulled out of context. And of course people do that with podcasts as well, but yeah, they do. I mean, yeah, for like really large mainstream podcasts where it's just like, you know, like Bill Simmons, he's a sports writer and, you know, talks, he's, you know, he gets hundreds of thousands of downloads for each of his podcasts. But if he mentions something 
you know, sports related, like, oh, this person may get traded or whatever. And it's just like, you know, people like will pick that apart. But he's like, well, I didn't actually say that. I was just a hypothetical. He's not, but anyways. Uh, so he'll like, <laughs> so yeah, people, you know, you get, you get blog aggregators who are just like, oh, yeah, we're just looking for some clickbait. But obviously, we operate in a world that isn't really as on that same level. So, yeah. But yeah, but I think most people say yes to this because it is not only is it fun, but then it's easy to be able to, um, you know, it, you're, it's a, it more or less of a conversation as opposed to, um, yeah, just this really linear thing. I'm just going to beat you up with questions and like, all right, well, moving along, like yeah. you answered that, so let's move along. It's like, yeah, yeah. I, I think to me, like, it's my ultimate fuck you to the state of where media is at or social media is at right now. Yeah, because everything is trying to grab your attention, and it's like ten second clip, this, this, and this, and this, and it's like, for me, I just think there's so much value and like something so nice about just sitting down and like talking to somebody and getting to know them and like that's why i'm so excited like a lot of the guests that i've had are people that i know to some extent sure and like we're in similar circles and like it makes sense for us to like know each other because of all the things but like just an honest conversation of getting to know somebody and being like wait you know this and this and this and like absolutely it's great i think that if i can learn so much from that and i'm so interested in that there has to be like to me i think about like maybe the generation after me that wants to get into music right? that like, there's so much to learn and there's so much to be said and there's so much insight where conversations like this being documented are important. Yeah. I would like to think that they add positivity. And, and they also, and they also add context too. Cause I think that's what most, m- most things are lacking in general where like you don't, you know, it's very easy in the digital age that we live in from being able to listen to every song from a particular artist, looking at their Wikipedia page. It provides a snapshot of those things, but it's it, it's really like I mean I use this example a lot, but it's just like, you know, drive-through records. Like yeah. drive-through records in the early 2000s was like everything. In late 90s, early 2000s, like it was everything. And it had a stage on warp tour. Yeah. But it's like, you know, you mentioned that now to a 16-year-old and it's just kind of like, well, I've kind of heard of the label. Like wasn't Newfound Glory on them? Like yeah. there it, it's hard to put that in context, but like when you're able to have a long-form conversation with a person about that particular thing, um or even just like, you know, certain like certain bands where it's like you know, bands like heavy, heavy, low, low, where it's Whoa. just right. Like I mentioned that to you and you could be like, you'd be like, Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. And like that band was like everything for a subset of kids for like two years. And now like I- irrelevant is the only way that you can describe that band. It's not like they're doing anything from that perspective, obviously broken up many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, the, the, the point being of what you're saying is, is like, it's just delivering context in a way that provided the person wants to put it in the work yeah. Then they're going to be able to understand so much more yes. and be able to layer it upon their knowledge. That's so good. Yeah, it's the context. It's like mm-hmm. a and it's coming from I think it's our job as a, a podcast host or curator to find guests that are educated and interesting and will add value. Sure. You know, I think that like you have like trust amongst listeners. So like if you put on if you guests deliver, that Absolutely, totally. Yeah, yeah, if you're delivering this experience, like you want the best compliment that I personally receive for any of the people that I bring on my podcast is like, oh, wow, like I didn't like that person's band. But like after listening to that conversation, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand Dude, them better. Yes, that. Like, I still don't like them. Like I still don't <laughs> like their band. Yeah. But like, oh, I see that they come from a similar world as I do or whatever. And it's like, yeah, like most of us that are attracted to this weird subculture, we've probably arrived at it 
via very similar circumstances. And as long as we're still here doing it in some capacity, yeah, there's a reason that you should know that. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like we don't accidentally keep still going to shows and stuff like that. You know, you're right. You're right. And I, I, again, what a great uh, medium to bring people together and like to bring more understanding and context to maybe parts of the culture that they don't even know are there. Yeah. And like, that's another reason why I'm so excited to have you because like, again, so many of my guests have been like on this like younger underground hip hop side or like whatever. Right. And like, what I know of you is like, one, you've been podcasting now, like getting close to literally 10 years. Yeah. And like, I just feel like you have so much knowledge and like you've been there and you've seen things happen. And I think that it's really important for people to have an open mind to those that have been there and done it and have made waves the same way like we were te- like talking before this started of like it's it's smart for the the people that have been in it to pay attention to the younger people it's smart for the younger people to learn too and like to be like yo you've you've done shit you've accomplished shit totally yeah and so, not and not being like that old you know the proverbial old guy in the porch that's just like clinging to thinking that like if they hold on to their thing like that's that's the the most important thing and everything else after that is just like oh yeah that's like you know that's what the young kids are doing like i don't need to pay attention to and it's like that can be true to a certain extent but it's like you also need to realize that it's like and not even like adapting to the world that you live in because it's not like you need to um, you know, like whatever the, you know, Steve Buscemi meme of like, yeah. him sk- carrying his sk- <laughs> like what are the, what, what's up with the music today, kids? Like that's, you don't need to be that. Um, but you need to be some version of like aware, like that's the one thing that I always really, um, focused on as I started to like, n- not only just like wake up to music and pay attention to independent punk hardcore and everything else, uh, is the, I tried to pay attention to everything. And when I say everything, it's like, you know, I would be at home at a, you know, like pop punk show, mm-hmm. you know, like whatever, you know, Epitaph, Fat, like I, I would go to see No Use for Name and No Effects and stuff like that. Sick. But then I would also be comfortable at, you know, an Earth Crisis or Strife show because like I I can live in both worlds and be comfortable with it. I would always self-identify as like, you know, a hardcore kid or whatever, but at the same time, like then I would also go to see the get up kids and like, I would be comfortable in all of these circumstances. Cause I think when people get too myopic over one thing, that's you're doing yourself a disservice because you can learn so much from all of these other areas yeah. and, and all these other, um, you know, whether it's like business models or, you know, touring practices or whatever, where you're just like, Oh, like <laughs> as far as like, because I've been working on the podcast industry for about you know, separate from my own podcast, but working for a company that, you know, you know, specifies in launching podcasts, monetizing them and everything else. Yeah. Like merch just started to become a thing like two years ago. Mm. And, and like the live podcast experience, like, you know, Oh yeah. And people, and, and that's becoming more and more of a thing. But just the idea of like them waking up to the idea of like, Oh yeah, like we can do merch for things. And like, I remember, when we, when the company I work for, it's called Stitcher. We first hired a person to like monitor merch. Like we had merch for some of our most popular podcasts, like Comedy Bang Bang and How Did This Get Made and stuff like that. But the per unit, what we were paying for shirts, they were t- they were like, oh yeah, we're paying like you know fourteen or fifteen dollars. I was just like, oh. what are you doing? This is insane. I'm like. Like I've been working in cotton for quite some time, manufacturing shirts from my bands and working at labels that we did shirts. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, you should be around like $4 a unit, like at the most for like yeah. simple silk screen Dude. stuff. And so anyways, just like, but 
because people were just so focused on like their industry and that's it. Yeah. Then you're not learning about anything else. Oh dude. And I love that you have that attitude. Cause like one, I think that like being in a DIY band at any point in time is like the ultimate real life college. If you are any <laughs> type of like the business person in it and totally. like, because you have to do so much, you have to learn marketing, you have to learn merchandising, you have to learn logistics of touring. You have to learn how to deal with other businesses and people like you learn so much. Right. So that's awesome that you were able to bring that into a world that didn't pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but like just in general, like that attitude that you have, and I think that the fundamental skills that you that I've noticed about you just from afar is like you're not trying to be the Steve Buscemi skateboard meme, but just like your core values are timeless. Like the way that you view things and the way that you hold up and the way that like you treat business, like even the way that we've emailed back and forth and all that, like. Yeah. You're never too good for anyone. You're quick to reply. You have an open mind. Like all of those things I think come from the college of music, but can be applied anywhere. And I think that you're perfect proof of that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But I I, I agree because I think it's, it is, um, when you're learning all of those things, like all those words you're saying, you know, logistics, merchandising, branding and stuff like you're not, that's not, you're not identifying that. Like, you know, when you're no. 17 years old, you're just doing the thing. You're like, we need shirts. Yeah. So I know a guy and like, oh, our guitarist can design this shirt. Like you're just, you know, it's very hand to mouth. It's very reactionary. Oh yeah. It's but the last then, thing you want to do to identify with it. You're just like, dude, I don't give a shit about this title. Like get me these shirts. We need to go on tour and totally. we need to eat. Yeah. And so, but it's only obviously once you get older and you have perspective on it, you're just like, oh yeah. Like these real life things that, that frankly, most people don't experience until they have entered the working force, graduated college or whatever, like, you know, maybe they have some an entrepreneurial experience of like, you know, yeah, I had like a, you know, lawn mowing business when I was nine or whatever. But like most people definitely don't have those real world learning experiences until they're much older. And then the thing that I notice in working in different environments that I've seen from, you know, the corporate side of things to nonprofits and whatever else, so many people are really comfortable staying in like their lane. So it's like, you know, Andrew, you have a job title. Yeah. This is your purview. This is, this is what you need to watch on monitor. Yeah. And like so many people are comfortable staying in that, but I know people like you and I, where we're like, yeah, like, you know, we know our general duties and our job title or whatever, but then we're always looking over at like other people's desks and be like, <laughs> Hey, like that's, that's cool. You're doing that over there. But like, did you think about doing it this way? Like yeah. I, I learned from this thing and people are just like, and, and most people take it as like a criticism. Yeah, like, are you trying to do my job better than me? I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. I just like, I've just seen this. Like, I can offer this up to you. It's like the general, uh, the curiosity of life where you're just like, are you excited too? And they're like, dude, yeah. fuck off. And you're like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> it told, and I, I, I see it time and time again. That's like, that's what, it's like so many people are comfortable in living with that. And of course, like the common pushback and frankly, something that I always tell myself where it's just like, you know, the, the idea of like the jack of all trades, the master of none. Like there are many times where I was just like, man, if I just focused on this one thing, like would I be that much better at Dude, it? Dude, that kills me. I, I feel that's so heavy. Right. And I, I think that, uh, but I am so comfortable being like okay at a bunch of things rather than like good at one thing. I was like, I just like that much better. <laughs> just more I, fun. I'm honestly really glad you say that because you do have some years on me and some experience and you've proven like success. And I struggle with that where I'm like, am I, am I doing the wrong thing by being the jack of all trades and yeah. should I double down and seeing an example like yourself where you love that and you've made it this far, like that's fucking cool to hear. And I hope that other people take that too <laughs> Yeah, because I don't know how to not do this. I agree. Yeah. It yeah. being, being, I, I use the word, it's like a generalist, you know, yeah. it's like, I think that they're, and I mean, they're 
it's not to give short shrift to the um the idea of like you know being a jack of all trades where it's just like like clearly you know we have a lane as far as like we are very passionate about this particular art of music you know and like not everybody follows that path or whatever so like we are quote-unquote experts in many fields of that so i'm not trying to give short shrift to that but it is that idea of just being able to have all of these different disciplines like I'll, there are people that like work at record labels that you and I are both, you know, friends with, familiar with, where it's like all they pay attention to is their record label and yeah. their artists. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And they're like, if you tried to have a conversation with them about like, oh, yeah, like this other, you know, band release on this, you know, this smaller label than yours or whatever, they're like, oh, yeah, tell me what's up with that. Just like, You've like never even heard of that? Yeah. What? what? What do you mean? You don't pay attention to the other things going on outside of your door? Like, you need to. Yeah. Not even so much from like a, oh, competition, I need to crush them, but just in like a, dude, you got to know what else is out there. Totally. And not just because your headlining act is like bringing them out on tour. Like, you should have already been aware of them if they're two out of four on a bill or whatever. Like, you just yeah, need to know dude. these things. It's crazy. So I, I didn't tell you too much of the format of the show. Yeah. And I'm lo- I love that we just kind of got to like talk about that to start. But um, if what I like to do is I like to kind of start from the beginning of somebody's story and just sure. kind of like take it back and learn so much, like just like kind of about like you and the pieces in your life, the pivotal points that got you to where you're at and the things that stuck and the things that matter to you. So to start that even a step further, if somebody doesn't know who you are, what is the quick explanation of who you are and what you do right now? Sure. So I, my primary job, so I, I, I work at a podcast company called Stitcher. And so we do, um, yeah, like we launch podcasts, we make podcasts, we, you know, we, we call it, this is such a cheesy term, but like we're a full stack podcast company. So it's like, you know, we can do anything in relation to podcasts. So, and I've been working there for about three years. Um, I also host my own podcast, like you mentioned, uh, it's which called is hundred words or less. Um, which the, the name is not apropos of anything to do with the actual content. And most people like the reason I came up with that name was because that was a common refrain at school where it was like in a hundred words or less, like if you're writing an essay, like grant, like, and this was far. Yeah. So it's like, and the joke, I thought it was funny because it's like, clearly like people that just read the name are just like, Oh, it's a really short podcast. It's like, yeah, I understand where you would think that it's not it because like anybody that's ever known a podcast knows that they're obviously long like yeah, you're yeah, going yeah. to be at least a half an hour if not an hour or more yeah um so anyways but i just named it that and it was it was like it just kind of stuck i like the name it was catchy but anyway so that, that explains it because it's i, I yeah. love the name and your branding is so good <laughs> and i've thought about that where i kind of figured it was similar something close to that yeah but i just thought it was a play on like you're never gonna fit this into a hundred words right no and that's but it was like at school you would be you'd be encouraged like in a hundred words or less you know write an essay about this particular topic or whatever so you'd have to you'd have to you know be economized with your words and be able to still you know try to get your point across or whatever so it was mm-hmm. just an exercise you know Ooh, i but, like that um okay, anyways so but yeah so stitcher that, that, 100 that words or less stitchers 100 words or less um i also manage uh, producers underneath the tandem management company um so i have four producers that i manage uh, and i've been doing that now for it's about six or so years yeah um i also do like consulting work for PETA, the animal rights organization because i worked there for about five years doing their let's see what was my title celebrity marketing manager which basically is just a fancy way of saying like hey celebrities and bands that are like animals like let's figure out a piece of content around whatever it is you want to talk about um and so yeah those are the general you know thing i mean i feel like i've got 
you know, seven jobs, yep. but it's like, I, you know, in the same way that, that you like the hustle, it's like, I like yep. the hustle too. It's fun. And it's fun to not just be doing one thing. Totally. You look at your to-do list and at least for me, like I've squared off <laughs> sections that Absolutely. are titled like, okay, cool. So I have version three, this, and then oh, I got to jump over here to capstan <laughs> totally. and do this. Yep. And it's yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's yeah. just fun to be able to, to, and then plus like, I really do truly feel when you were working in the creative arts, mm-hmm. um, that all of these can bleed into one another because yeah. usually people are attracted, you know, it, this, it's the same way where it's like athletes always want to be rappers and rappers always want to be athletes. Mm. It's a similar idea where it's just like people that are interested in music are probably interested, like clearly they're interested in audio. So they're, they're just like, Oh, oh podcast. Like, yeah, th- there's just such a, uh, interchangeability in which you can kind of operate in the what would seem like disparate universes it's like well no like they all kind of operate the same way like on a day-to-day basis i am i continually laugh when i see the the podcast industry uh you know how big it is now and how i see the way that like honestly it's a one-for-one parallel with the music industry the deals that are struck with podcasts um the way that like just the business side is structured it's exactly the same way as what we're used to at record labels like you know you're just talking about like profit split deals and um you know like just it's so simple like i was just like seeing the agreements I, like almost to a t where i'm just like Oh yeah, like the, you know, maybe there's some more mentions about like intellectual property rights and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's pretty similar. So I just laugh where I'm like, oh yeah, they all play together. And like, I mean, we even touched on it at the beginning. Like, you know, you understanding merchandise and bringing extra value to your company. Like, yeah. I love that. And again, it's such cool proof. So I think that says what you do very well, and all of those companies are very well regarded. So that's cool. I think that speaks for you as well that you're involved with a lot of things. Like I know. I've used one of your producers for one of the artists, like with yeah. limbs, like I used Bo and like, yeah. I mean, it's cool. Like all of those things are legitimate in what you do. So you're proof that you can do a lot of things and do them well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and it's just the, um, and I think it's uh, what I really try to focus on too, is it's not just the, it's, it's the fun of it. It's the process of it. And it's the ability to like, want to like actually help not only like yourself from a selfish perspective, but just you help others where it's just like, if I'm creating value for you by releasing a weekly podcast about music, like that's awesome. It's satisfying my creative urge, but then it's also satisfying you. If I'm able to help a producer get more work, like that's awesome. If we feel like we're working with one another together to build something hopefully greater in the future, that's awesome. And it's a good feeling. And so I really always try to answer like really fundamental questions. If I'm ever trying to like do something from a business perspective, I'm like, is it fun for me? Um, and am I like, can I be helpful? You know, those are like the two North star questions that I always ask myself. And it's like, that's, if I can, if I tick off both those boxes, I'm kind of like, okay, yeah. Then like, but then why not do it? You that's know? great. That's yeah. so good. So, okay. So with that said, yes, take me back to like you in like finding your first hobbies, like be like whatever age you are, wherever you're living, but like, where are you kind of finding your first interests in more than just school? Yeah. Uh, I'm an only child, so I entertained myself constantly. I didn't have a large family in regards to like cousins or people that I was playing with or next door neighbors. Like I had friends, but it wasn't one of those things where they were like always readily accessible. So from an early age, I was super into, because I mean, I'm, I was born in 1980, so I'm 38. Um, so like G.I. Joe, He-Man, like collecting all of these characters, being able to create these worlds where it's like, there'd be time, like, this is going to sound cruel, but it's like my mom would like, she had like a walk-in closet and I would Mm. have all of my like, you know, GI Joes or He-Mans there. And I would just 
being there for hours, just yeah. being like, dude, here's, you know, here's Duke and Snake Eyes going mm-hmm. on a mission to rescue. Like, yes. It just create all just that worlds. imagination. It was because so, it was just so much fun. And then, like, I mean, I got so, like, as I got older, because I would always rely on myself for fun, like, even when I was getting into video games, like, I, I'll never forget this. Um, I played golf at an early age too. So like about seven, I picked up golf. Oh, wow. Um, so I played, um, I mean, I, I played like in tournaments and stuff like that, but I like once video games started to become a thing and there was golf video games and yeah. I was always like, I really like this golf video game, but it's not as realistic as what I want it to be. So I came up with this elaborate system of like rolling dice and then keeping track of my golfer, like from a career perspective where I'd be entering tournaments and I'd be like, I'd make up, I'm like, oh, if I win this tournament, I win $15,000. But then I had to spend like $3,000 on flat. It was nerdy. Like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. At a young age. This is, well, this is when I was probably like 11 or so. So I was like, but I, I like, I still have that game and these sheets where it's like, I found them not too long ago. And I was just like, my gosh, dude, like so nerdy, obsessive about it. So you can easily see the, the through line of like, once music started to become a thing, like, you know, I, I wasn't raised in a musical household. Yeah. Um, my mom was into like Beatles, Bob Dylan and the family opera soundtrack. Wow. Like that was basically it. There yeah. wasn't and like the radio was on, but it wasn't. I feel you on that. I kind of had a similar thing. Yeah. Like well, like my, it wasn't fostered in the yeah. sense of like, oh, this is incredibly important to me. It was like, yeah. oh, it's there. It, yeah. It's not that it's not there, but there's no relevance to it. It's just like, yeah, you can listen to music. It's a thing. Right, right. Yeah. That's exactly it's there. Very, very fair portrayal. I th- And honestly, I think most people um, that come from, you know, what I, even though technically we aren't part of the same generation, it's like, you know, that that's, that's kind of the way that our parents like viewed music. Yeah. And so... Once I started to like, unfortunately, living in Southern California, we have an amazing radio station, K Rock, and like, oh yeah, the you know whenever when I was you know ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, like that was you know early nineties, and obviously like grunge and like you know the 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 breakthrough of mainstream punk, and so you know, Offspring and you know Bush and Nirvana, like all that stuff started to happen, and I started to pay attention to it because it was on the radio, so I was kind of like, oh cool, and then. Um, starting to, you know, be able to go to like concerts, like definitely not shows, but concerts, you know, yeah. like huge arena events. Wow. Good way to say it. Oh yeah. Concerts versus shows. There's a, there's a distinct difference. Like wow. when you're going to the Staples Center to see Ariana Grande, clearly that's a concert. But if you're going to, you know, like, I mean, I would even argue like, even though, you know, a house of blues is whatever, a thousand cap room. Yeah. Still a concert. Yeah. You know? Like yeah. you're not, you're not buying a seat there or whatever. Yeah. So, and yeah. then like you go to a show and you're at like a tiny, like a club or a bar exactly. or something and you're there, you see the artist, you feel the energy. There's right. the crowd as an energy. It's yeah, you're in a sweaty room. That's yeah. like essentially what you are. So Fuck, yeah, I love a, that. I've never had that differentiation really? put yeah, so yeah. simply. That's great. Yeah. That's, I, I've always viewed it. I mean, especially once I started to experience that, that, that touch point of smaller shows um there are like because we would say shows to anybody and like most people would be kind of like show like is that a movie you know and so like once i started to encounter that language difference and barrier i would then start to deploy both of those words strategically where i would just be like oh yeah like concerts like that's you know your average mainstream person is going to know what a concert is totally i'm not going to mention but then i would never all the shows that I played, I would never describe as concerts because like, I, yeah. you know, I, that's not what the, the vibe is. That's brilliant. Like. I love that. Thank you. Um, I can't, yeah, I wish I could like attribute that to somebody. I, I for sure did not make that up on my own, but I definitely like, I, just, I think I was just able to pull disparate parts I'm, of information. I'm giving it to you. Yeah, that's, I'm take, putting take that, that, I'm putting that on you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, but then, so yeah, so it was early nineties, started to become obsessed with music. Um, 
And then once I started to feel like I had some sort of authorship over the music that I was able to buy and be attracted to, you know, it was like, I definitely didn't do the, the, well, I think at maybe one point I did that Columbia house record club where it was yeah, like, dude. You know, a penny for 12 CDs and yeah. they would charge you like a million dollars for the next shipments or whatever. <laughs> um, I think I did that, but then um, my father, my parents were divorced at early age. My father lived in Vegas. I would visit him occasionally, and he would take me to, like, concerts. So he took me to my very first concert. I saw um, the Australian band NXS when I was, like, probably eight or so. Um, they played the Thomas and Mack Center in Vegas. Um, you know, huge arena show. Um, I didn't, like, I didn't wasn't familiar with the band. I just, like, went with him. But I just remember being stoked, like, dancing in the aisles. Like, I was like, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And, like, it was just fun. And um, having that having the idea that like bands can perform in front of you. Like I remember that flipping a switch where I was kind of like, this is cool that like music can like be real, like not just on this recorded medium or the radio, you know? Oh yeah. And so making that connection where it's like, Oh, like this, this can be a thing. Like not even so much. Like I was thinking about like, Oh, you know, you can start a band. I didn't think that at all, but just the idea that bands can come to you and perform in front of you was like a really valuable thing that I like, I I just, I didn't recognize before, you know, and that was like eight or nine. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, once I started to feel like I had authorship over, you know, my own music purchases, so it was probably like, yeah, 12 or 13 is when I started to, you know, that's when like, you know, Tower Records and Warehouse and those music stores were still a thing uh, and like a huge thing. Like you could yeah. find them at any mall. And um, so, it's, you know, started buying, I, th- I remember specifically buying a lot of, because um, at that time too, that was when. Um, you know, gangster rap started to explode. So it's like, you know, Yo. Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and being a privileged white suburban boy that spoke yeah. to me greatly, where I was just like, wow, these <laughs> dudes are talking about worlds I have no clue about. Yeah. What is that? Like, just like the suburban white kids being like, I need it. Absolutely. Dude, talk, talking about being hard and fucking bitches and all yeah. this other stuff, where I was just, I was <laughs> like, what? Are they smoking chronic? I'm like, this yeah. is insane, but it's so good. That's so funny. And so, but they, that, they really marketed like cassette singles at the time. Oh, whoa. So it was like, it, it would basically be, you know, a cassette and it would have one maybe two songs from a record usually with like an instrumental remix and you would be buying that for like maybe four or five dollars and you know like tapes 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 were still primarily the most popular thing but we're switching over to cds yeah what year is that then this is early 90s okay so but you would be talking about like you know your average full length would be 18 19 for a cd maybe a little bit cheaper for a tape yeah but, but i was just like i was like dude cassette singles are amazing because like you cut out all the rest of the crap you're only getting the banger the banger single but it but in retrospect i was just like oh my god i wasted so much like i probably spent you know a good 300 dollars on all these dumb cassette singles where it's just like it's got one song like, yeah what's, what's <laughs> it doing? it's so stupid i don't know i see both sides i love that though that's funny do you because still it, have them yeah of course yeah amazing. yeah and pl- well and i think i mean by most kids are just concerned about the, you know, the economy. So they're, when I say the economy, I mean like they've, you have $10 to spend. You're yeah. like, dude, if I can get three songs for $10, like, and all these three songs I already love, like, why would I waste money on like a 14 song record when I'm only like three songs or whatever? I mean, dude, like I can draw a parallel to like when I was getting into music, like I remember buying Through the Wire by Kanye and not the whole album sure. on iTunes, like buying singles on iTunes. And I would do the same thing because I Absolutely. only had so much money totally. and it was a little easier, right? Because you could sample through the album, but I'd have right. to pick my favorites because I couldn't buy the whole album. I didn't have money. No, you, yeah. Yeah, you had to pick your spots. You yeah. were forced to um yeah do that just based on economy yeah but, so um, it's cool to hear that actually because i didn't realize that 
exact ex- same feeling, but yeah. in a different era. Yeah, totally. It was just a del- it, it, no matter what the you know, music industry will always rely on that that you know that single culture, whatever it may be. You know, like yeah. whether it's like that's obviously the main launching point for a record or it's going to be the song that's streamed the most or whatever there's always going to be that single economy you know um, yeah. even though people are obviously not paying it in the most transactional way anymore from a streaming perspective but that's always going to be the main driver you know because yeah. people are always going to be interested in the best song or two on a record it's true what a timeless concept i know that, yeah, that should not be slept on i think that that's an important underlying lesson in a lot of things yeah that could be slept on yeah exactly because yeah. it's just it's there are there are certain things that will always exist just because it's like that's not and not even so much in like that that works so we'll never question it it's just like well that that works for a reason like yeah and it, you don't need to like think about it too much it's just like that works and historic data has now shown that yeah. right and like <laughs> yeah exactly you can't yeah, argue with that now. many years of history okay so you're buying tapes so buying tapes and then yeah started to um you know progress to where it was like i i was i didn't really have like you know i mean i had a great family life i wasn't like an angsty kid as far as like looking to express myself and like you know harder music or whatever but i was always attracted to um where it's just like i remember seeing like you know ace ventura pet detective and like cannibal corpses in that movie and like they're the the death metal band oh. and they played the song called hammer smashed face like they, they, they i mean it's like a less than 15 second clip of Ace Ventura Pet Detective, but it's like he gets thrown in a mosh pit and like the, this Cannibal Corpse is playing in there. You just blew my mind. And so I was, I was just, I was just like, wow, Cannibal Corpse. And like, so I just remember like at like a tower records looking at the records and like, you know, Cannibal Corpse is like so over the top, you know, it's like that, you know, their song titles, like I'll never forget some of their song titles from like hammer smash face to, you know, entrails rip from a virgin's cunt to like, just like, yeah, like they own it. Totally. And I just remember, like, I never bought any of their stuff, but I just always would, like, look at the records. And so I, there was always this, like, you know, darkness that kind of, like, uh, tried to appeal to me and, like, bring me in. But I didn't, I never went down the metal route. I always went down, or I, not always, but I went down the, you know, the punk side of things where it was, like, because then it was probably, like, 13 or 14 years old is when um, there was this movie that came out called uh, Pump of the Volume with Christian Slater. Um, it was an amazing movie still like holds up, but basically he's like a, uh, you know, pirate radio broadcaster. Like he has like, you know, the, the wattage of like, you know, four square miles, but it happens to, uh, boot into his high school. And so like all of these kids, like he's a nerd in high school, everyone ignores him, but then he puts on this like sort of shock jock, like anti, um, everything persona on the radio and like all the kids, you know, all the jocks, like everybody at high school loves this dude. And Whoa. so, but he, he like modulates his voice to where people can't really tell. Anyways, they put, there's a, a part in there where he plays, and I'm ironically wearing the shirt today, uh, Descendants. So he plays like a Descendants song um, called Wiener Schnitzel. And it's like, it was like a, it was like a funny song. It was like maybe 30 seconds long. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I heard that and I was kind of like, what is that? It's like, this is, this seems this is interesting. I've never really heard that before. And it was funny. So it was like my, you know, 12, 13 year old brain was like, Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And so then I started to look into who the descendants were. And there was a, um, there was a record store in located here in, uh, in Southern California called a uh, CD listening bar. And what they would do is they would actually allow you to open a CD, yeah. listen to it. And then they would like, they would, you know, put it back. Like if you didn't buy it, they would like put it back for you and they would, you Whoa. know, but they, and they would sell. It was amazing. Cause I, I, I sat there wow. for an hour. I was I was probably the worst customer because I would buy like after listening to music for like three hours, I'd buy like one CD, you know. Damn. But it was amazing because you had 
so much music at your fingertips where you could sample stuff that you normally did not have the access to because clearly this was the early, you know, early to mid nineties. Yeah. Shouts to them. That's fucking cool. It was like, great. And it wasn't a chain. It was just this random store. Like it, but it was it, there because I see their logic where they're just like, the more people listen and stay in here, the likelihood of them buying more stuff is real. And I was like, I get that. Like, yeah. especially if you're an adult that has like, disposable income but you know whatever a 14 year old kid definitely was going to buy one record that's it yeah um so anyways but then i so i listened to descendants there and i was like wow like this is so this is kind of like what punk is and then i started to get exposed to it a little bit more at my high school where there was like you know one or two punk kids that were into the more you know like classic like you know subhumans and crass and a lot of the you know the the 80s punk stuff but then i was also being able to listen to this more poppy stuff from, you know, all your early epitaph, all your fat records, like lag wagon, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I started getting turned on to all that. Um, and then I'll never forget buying the, uh, there was so victory records. They put out a comp called victory style. Yeah. And it was, uh, that was, you know, the day and age where it was like $5 for a comp. Dude, getting comps was amazing. It was the best. Cause it was typically singles. Yep. And so the songs were pretty popping. They are. And you're finding all this new music and it's cheaper than other stuff. Absolutely. So oh. yeah, that that basically threw me down the rabbit hole of hardcore. Like I had listened to, you know, Minor Threat or, you know, Dead Kennedys and stuff like that. And I started to understand what that world was, um, especially like, you know, through the prism of like straight edge and stuff like that. But um, it wasn't until uh, Victory that introduced me to, you know, Snapcase, Strife, Earth Crisis, um, you know, Dead Guy, Guilt, all of these bands. Yeah. Then I was just like, wow. So there's stuff that's like heavier and like more aggressive and like they're yelling as opposed to like shout singing, which is obviously what some of the punk that I was listening yeah. to at the time. How old are you at that time? Like as you're finding this? At that time, at that time, I was probably... Uh, I was probably, I was 15 or so when I started to discover like the heart, you know, the quote unquote harder stuff. Okay. I'd already been listening to like, you know, I mean, Rancid and Green Day and Offspring, all those bands broke and I had yeah. seen them because the, I mean, Southern California was such a bastion for that stuff. Like they would play, you know, they would play in the area a decent amount, those bands. That's so, so like, cool. I was able to see it primarily Rancid and Offspring. Green Day I only saw a couple of times and then Blink also. Like Blink yeah. was huge. Dude. Um and seeing those bands like see I still have Cheshire Cat when they were just called Blink. Wow. And it was like and it's like but seeing them at like the showcase theater in Corona and just being like wow, this band's great. And like hearing them play Eminem's, which is like, oh, this is an amazing song. And so. Fuck, dude. Cause like you are that generation above me, but like those were the bands, like the bands you just listed there were like, that was my first taste of finding music that wasn't on the radio. Yeah. And you know, like obviously I'm later to it and they were more established, but like when you talk about it, like being in that moment and it happening, fuck, that's crazy. It was huge. Yeah. It was, it was, it was so great to be able to like, with it because like there's nothing more exciting than feeling like you're witnessing something grown to something larger yeah where you're just kind of like wow like and especially if you are you know of the age in which you can actually recognize that like there's yeah. nothing more you've experienced it i've experienced it where it's like either you're watching friends or bands that you're like you know you're somewhat familiar with where it's just like this feels like a moment like they sold out this venue or whatever and you're just like this is so like this feels so incredibly exciting i think that's another timeless thing yeah. I think in us talking, that's another timeless, you've got singles and you've got that, when you feel that energy as a fan, I don't think that ever goes away. No, because there's there's something, that, that's obviously why the live music industry will never go away. It'll ebb and flow, it'll change in certain dimensions, but people are always going to want to experience that collective communal experience of their favorite artist in front of them. You yeah. Know? And like, the, the especially when you expose people like, I always, I, I don't use this term uh, disparagingly, but like, you know, civilians, 
Mm-hmm. I use that like to just people, like oh, civilians, sure, people yeah. that have not been exposed to yeah. what we've been exposed to. Well, like our parents being like, yeah, music exists. Right, exactly. Very civilian thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Where it's just like there are people who it's like, you know, I go to church and there's a friend of mine at church who is like, you know, he's he's a civilian. Great yeah. dude. Love him to death. Totally. But just does not like, you know, he's his exposure to music is very, you know, surface level. He's like, yeah, I like it. He's like, yeah, I like Five Finger Death Punch. And I was just like, holy crap. Yeah. Like, yeah, there are you, people like you. You might be a civilian to him and something. He might be a huge into like like totally. uh, gardening. And yeah. you'll be like, yeah, you know, sunflowers are cool. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just okay a tourist way. there. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And so taking, I a couple months ago, we went to uh, Arizona, be, mentioning Five Finger Death Punch. Um a friends of mine were on tour with Five Finger Death Punch, and he loves this band. My Amazing. grandma lives out in Arizona, so I was like, okay, we can take a road trip to Arizona. Yeah. We can go check out this Five Finger Death Punch show. As long as you're cool hanging out with me and my grandma for a couple hours, he's like, oh, this is great. I can see friends, whatever. Anyways, the night that we rolled into the town, um, my friends in drug church were playing. Oh, cool. And so I was I was like, dude, he's probably never been to a show. And I was like, dude, would you be game to go into the, like, this, this show? And he was like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, he had an awareness of it, but never been. And so there was like... It was a great turnout for like a Thursday night. It was like hundred some odd people. It was like, you know, drug church, gouge away. Uh, I can't remember who else. But anyways, he watched the show and he was just like, yeah, this is, this is really good. And mm-hmm. it's like, I, it's such a common experience for me yeah. that I was like, yeah, it was a good show. It was fun. You know, Patrick yeah. did well with drug church, but like yeah. to a person, to an, an uninitiated eye. And it's, so it's like, anyways, the point I'm trying to make is exactly what you're saying, where it's just like, if you're able to like show somebody this thing and they have it doesn't even need to be a crazy show but it can just be that that small room and that connectivity yeah that people feel and they're just like oh wow i recognize this like this feels so good yeah and i think there's a rewarding feeling being the person that like shows that to somebody (gasps) too it feel yeah you 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 feel like you unlock a per a part of a person's brain in ways that like you just you can't do in any other fashions that's a great way to put it yeah it's so cool but um, yeah, anyways, so but then, yeah, getting, getting into, you know, punk and hardcore even more. And then it was, um, yeah, started my first band in high school. It's called Doom Society. It's okay. Horrible, horror. I actually just got the digitized MP3s of it recently from uh-huh. uh, the kid who played guitar in the band. <laughs> and it was like, I mean, listening to it, I, like, I played from wife the other night. It was just like, dude, this is like the best, worst thing ever. It's like, yeah. it's so bad. But, yeah. Um, Cause it's like, we were sort of punk, sort of hardcore, no idea what we were doing. That's um, like, I, I like, I didn't play in bands, but like looking back at the old skate videos that oh, like yeah. we used to make, like, it's so bad. It's, ama- it's so bad, but like it needed yeah. to be, you it, had- it needed to be that bad. And that's the, that's the one thing that I tell, like, I don't know if this is kind of hardwired into people like you and I who get attracted to these weird subcultures where it's like, I don't care if I fail at stuff. Like I'll yeah. fail miserably all the time. Like I, I don't have this inherent, like to a certain extent, like I'm not going to fail to where I'm just like, Oh cool. Like I lost like $175,000. Like there's, you know, levels of acceptable failure or whatever, but most people are really scared to fail. And so it's like, you know, you and I like would just like blindly go and say, well, yeah, whatever. I'll start a management company or whatever. I'll just do this thing. And it's just like, I'm just working out. It's fine. Like, I don't know. It's just that weird feeling of like, we'll just try things. <laughs> I actually love again that you said that though because recently I'm 28 and right. it's only recently that I've really become comfortable with that. Like committing like moving all the way from Florida to California and like there was a long time where I was doing the risky things and I was not ready to fail. Yeah. I was so afraid of it. Yeah. And I think that like 
once you get to that comfortable level and maybe that just comes with age and failing more and more. Yeah. But like now, like only now am I really starting to like, <laughs> like to embrace I'm good, that. I'm, I'm like, good. yo, like, yeah, let's go fuck it up. Let's fail. Let's totally, try. I don't care. Totally. Yeah. You, you have to be able to try, but that that's, that's the one thing that it's like, you know, being like, you're going to be terrible at most of the stuff that you do in life. Like very rarely, like you're going to have one friend amongst your hundreds in high school that like can just pick something up and immediately do it. You know, like yeah. you're going to be terrible at stuff for a long time. Shouts so, to Jeremy Bloomberg. He right. was always that. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're always so going to have good. that friend where it's yep. just like, dude, you're immediately doing kickflips. Like, I can barely Every, ollie dude, a curve. 360 flips, yeah. fucking week two. Unreal. <laughs> Professional at Counter-Strike, did everything. Yeah, you're just like, uh, that is that is not the norm, though. Yeah, Most does, people are terrible yeah. at stuff for a long time. Until, Absolutely. like, you get, like, somewhat reasonable. Enough yeah. to where you'd be like, oh, this is now, like, fun for me as opposed to, like, I'm just getting punished over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, that's what you got to do with bands and everything else, like especially from an artistic expression. It's like totally you have to, and like I, I see that even more so now, pronounced with like you know being a father. Like my son's eight years old, and like he has that mentality of just like, oh, I got to be perfect at something before I do it. And I'm just, I just constantly tell him, just like, no, like if first of all, if you're comparing yourself to like me. Of course, I can write better than you. I've been doing this for like thirty more years than you. Yeah, did. and it's like, yeah, you cannot, you cannot play that game. Like, you just, you're gonna be terrible at it, and then all of a sudden, you'll be a little bit better, and then all of a sudden, you're gonna be a little bit better than most of the people at the thing that you know that you're you're trying to do. Yeah. Um. So yeah, same thing can be said about playing in bands. Like, you yeah. have to be terrible at it for a long time. And I think now too, like, comparison is so much easier with like social media and the internet. Oh yeah. Uh, which is terrible because yeah. I, I agree that you have to just be terrible. And mm-hmm. now you see nothing but perfection. And I look back and I embrace the terrible. So you had your terrible recordings. You had your band. Absolutely. you ha- Yeah, you have to. And so, yeah, so did that band for a little bit, but then wanted to play something a little bit harder. And that's where uh, the band that I play, well, I technically play now called Taken. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started about 98, toured pretty religiously and pretty consistently until about 2004. Wow. Um, but yeah, so that started at like sophomore year of high school. Um, started to tour that summer. Um, wow. And so it was It was very, all those principles that you're talking about where it's just like, oh, booking shows and like doing all this stuff. Like it, you didn't really know what you were doing and what you were trying to accomplish besides, oh yeah, I want to, we got to put a demo. Like we got to, maybe we'll play a show in Vegas. You know, it's like yeah. you just started to put one foot in front of the other. And I was always the more, you know, like the spark plug or the catalyst for a lot of this stuff, just because I was the lead vocalist. I didn't have musical talent. Like everybody else was talented. I wasn't writing anything besides my lyrics. I was going to ask you that because like coming from a non-musical family and like finding music and going and buying records, not necessarily buying instruments or having a a parent teaching you. So you found vocals and you, you figured that out or you did. I did. I mean, I was basically just the only one that like, didn't, I was, we were, cause basically we were killing time or me and the drummer that, uh, played in taken. We were, we were playing basketball together on the high school team. And there was always like a good hour and a half before basketball practice started after school Mm. was over. So then we would just go to his house and it would be one of those things. We were just kind of hanging out. Yeah. And like he was like, I, I loved drums and I tried to play drums, but like he was way better than I ever was. So I was just like, that's your thing, dude. Um, but then I was like, I was, I was just always there with friends that already played guitar. And I was just like, well, I guess I'll just try like singing. Like I was like, I know I can't sing, sing. Like I tried to be in the choir and that yeah. did not work out well. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I, I can probably like yell or maybe I'll try this. And so I just did it over time and got, progressively a little bit better to where and then i figured out like my own sort of style with it to where it was like okay like you know i i know that 
I, I'm comfortable in doing this. Yeah. And the rest of the band wasn't like, dude, please stop. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Like, another lesson of just like trying, like just going and trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so then, yeah. So that's then, early. So you start early touring all that. Tour, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and then we put out, yeah, we put out our first, we put out like a demo on a seven inch and then we put out our first EP on a label called Goodfellow Records in like 90, 98, I want to say. So it was like junior year of high school. Um, touring, like basically every waking moment that we possibly could from weekend shows to, um, yeah, every summer we would be out for pretty much the entire time, like, you know, good two and a half months out of the summer. Um, and like either we never had a booking agent. So it was always just a matter of like trying to hustle with, cause at that time too, booking agents were, I mean, booking agents are still difficult for bands to get, but at that time there really was only a very small handful that were like dealing with bands of this genre. Um, cause essentially we were just like melodic hardcore stuff. Um, yeah. you know, very similar to like, you know, what bands like counterparts and stuff are doing now, like yeah. counterparts. I mean, they're good friends of ours and they give us an enormous amount of credit for like what it was that they were influenced by. They were like, Oh yeah, we're influenced by, you know, shy you know, taken like did they, they've named a name checked us many times. And That's I'm just so like, cool. that makes me feel really good because I just love that style of music. And I'm glad that it continues to be important to that, subculture yeah um but yeah but then being able to like just you know put all those things together put out some records you know do some tours and frankly everything that i've gotten from my life has i've i've been able to trace back to um that band in some capacity whether it's like oh my first opportunity at working at a record label or um you know my wife and like all of these things i was able to directly connect back to that band like meaningful relationships have all been just because of one dumb band that really is was never big like we could sell it chain reaction we could maybe play some really good shows up in canada but we weren't like successful it wasn't like we were like coming home with thousands of dollars it was like oh cool like we were able to pay for the tour with like our guarantees and like, you know, our merch was covered and like, you know, maybe we had a couple hundred bucks left over that people could split, but you know, that's crazy. Yeah. I think that's another cool example to be like, yeah, like you just went for it and it wasn't like this insane commercial success yet. Nope. It completely changed your life. Yeah. Oh, it's complete. I mean, it, it, the fact or that it's shaped, Oh, it totally yeah. did. It shaped, I mean, it shaped the way that I view relationships. It shaped the, the, um, the way that I interacted with people and how, fleeting one thing may feel is actually like a long lasting thing. Cause there, there are people who I am still friends with some 20 years later where it's just like, Oh yeah, dude, we met at a random show in, you know, Florida or Boston or whatever. It was like, yeah, I'm still friends with them because they are still connected to this scene as well. So. Can I ask a question about Please. the early touring days? Please. Okay. So you said like you start touring around 98. Yeah. Okay. So to like date this and to think about this and to put some context in it, like you don't have smartphones. You don't have phones. <laughs> no, dude. So what does like, because I've heard a couple friends tell me about this, but like you're self-booking these shows. Yeah. So like. How did you accomplish that? Yeah. <laughs> you're calling them on the phone, right? Like how a are you getting these phone numbers? And yeah. then like how are you navigating to these shows? Are you hoping that the doors are open when you show up? Like that, yeah. like paint me that picture of like DIY touring then. Because I don't think, I think that. Too many bands don't realize how much good they have in oh, like yeah, just yeah. pop the GPS and get to the city, pop on a bird scooter when you get there. Don't have to worry <laughs> about like paint me the picture yeah. of DIY touring in 98 because that is just so fascinating to me. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it definitely I try not to romanticize it where it's like, oh, it, you, you know, you children have it so much better. It's like, you know, they're 
we in the late nineties had it so much better than, you know, like when black flag was booking tours across the, like every generational iteration, it's going to be easier than it was previously. But the, so yeah, I was booking a lot via cause message board culture started to pop up around there. Yeah. And so it's like record labels would have their own message boards and stuff like revelation records had a really active message board. And so there would be shows I'd be booking through, through message boards where it's just like people being like, Oh yeah, talk to this dude for Columbus or whatever. Yeah. And so you would just, it was a lot of email because at that time, you know, the internet had started to um, populate to where people would obviously have it at home. Um, yeah. And so it was like, you know, but it was like dial up, you know, it was like yeah, AOL. So it's totally. like the, the only functions you could really do would just be like, you know, email and visiting websites and stuff. Yeah. And message boards. Like that's exactly. really, yeah, that's all that the internet could be. Totally. Yeah. So yeah, it's like they, they, it would, it would be just a matter of, um, yeah. And then like once you actually like played out, uh, you know, at other shows, whether it was like, you know, when bands would come through on tour and you'd be playing with them, you would be doing as much trading of information as possible. Like if they booked the tour themselves, like you would be able to be like, who should I talk to for this? Like if you had the vision to do that. Yeah. Um, and so there would definitely be times where it's like, once we started to make friends, like, you know, one of our, our closest like sister bands was this band called curl up and die from Vegas. And it's like, we just became really, really good friends traded a bunch of shows they would yeah. come out here we would come out there and then we just started to kind of like piece this all t- collectively together we started to i remember the f- very first tour that we we booked it was so terrible because it was like you know we were out for we were quote unquote out for three weeks played probably maybe five shows like it yeah. was because so, like maybe a week before we left all these shows fell through all these kids were emailing me being like oh dude this thing fell through or whatever and so like I had to go back to not only tell my band members, but then tell Curl Up and Die, hey, so those like, you know, 20 shows I had booked, like it sounded like five now. Like, do you guys still want to like go out? Like we're we're still gonna go out. We're just gonna treat this kind of like a vacation. Um, but yeah, but it was it was definitely all just about collecting as much information as you could and then being able to make those relationships through trusted either trusted allies in other bands or other promoters that are just like, Oh yeah. Like I, my friend shows up in Portland. So like you should talk to Jeff or whatever. So that's crazy. Yeah. It was just all, all piecing that together. And then as far as like showing up to the shows, you would, we would, we would always joke around where it was like, we were using MapQuest. Okay. And so it would be a matter of the tour was booked. We'd have all the addresses. We put all the addresses in, we'd print out, you know, a hundred pages of these directions. The MapQuest Bible. It would be, but it was, and it was, it was crazy because it was like, we would have to be getting directions from the venue to the next venue. So the moment that we diverged from that, I mean, which was all the time because we'd be staying at someone's house. (laughs) And then at that point we would have to figure out like, okay, well, what free, so we got to take the 40. Okay. Where does the 40 pick up on this? So it was a lot of like just piecing stuff together. And then of course shows changed all the time, like, you know, on a whim. So where we would like, and sometimes we wouldn't even be able to know that until we got to a person's house and we're like, Oh dude, our show in Chicago got changed tomorrow. So like, thank God we were at a person's house that like had the internet. So like, Oh we'd be, my God. So yes. yeah, there was a lot of like just completely flying blind and then, yes. or, or these venues wouldn't have like the most appropriate addresses. So we would get in the general vicinity and then we would joke around where we would like look for the scene. Like we'd be oh. like, so you'd be just driving around, be like looking around be like, Hey, that kid looks like they're kind of into like punk or something. Like, hey, do you know where the show? Like, and so the or go or there'd be times. I mean, this wasn't all the time, but there'd be times where we really we, like we tried to find the quote unquote scene. Like, there wasn't anybody there at the time, so we would go to the local mall and just kind of like wander around. We like Yo. we'd be we'd be there like you know like three and the show doesn't start till six, so we just kind of wander around. Like, if someone looked like remotely into subculture, we'd be like, 
hey, because at that time too, like hot topics weren't very prevalent, so it wasn't like a, a hub spot that we could go to. So yeah. we'd just be wandering around being like, oh hey, this person looks like hey, are you going, are you going to a show tonight? Yeah, like, go oh, yeah, the yeah. FYE or something like that. Yeah, dude, it was so. Yeah, but I mean, we would randomly, but then like, if we were lucky enough to meet someone at the mall, we would be like, oh, cool. You know where the show is? Like, can we also stay at your place? Dude, <laughs> just, I, yeah. that's so funny. Cause I actually draw parallels to that to even touring in like 2010. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, it, it, it's very, like, it is a lot of survival, making the best out of whatever situation that you are currently in and just yeah. trying, uh, ultimately just trying to be resourceful. That's so good. Yeah. So, okay. So you, I mean, that's a huge part of your life and that takes you into like growing up and where do you then get into like more of the industry side? I got hot. So they were, uh, I worked at Century Media Records for about 10 years. Wow. They looked at signing Taken to Century Media because at that time, so it was early 2000s. This is when kind of the Orange County hardcore scene started to like really become exposed where, yeah. you know, 18 Visions, Throwdown, Bleeding Through, um, a lot of the labels like, you know, Ferret and Trustkill, like that stuff just started to pop off. Like Poison the Well was doing really well. Um, cool. There's just so much stuff happening. Yeah. Uh, granted, obviously like Poison the Well was not from Southern California, but just like that scene started to bubble up. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of focus being placed on Orange County. And so, um, they, Century Media had, they had dabbled in hardcore in the past, but they hadn't really done a ton of stuff. So they were looking at signing Taken. Um, and then I became friendly with the A&R guy. His name is Steve Joe. Still works in the industry, works for Prosthetic Records. Wow. Um, as far as a mentor is concerned, cause I know yeah. you said Johnny Minardi is a person that you kind of labeled that. Shouts to my guy. Exactly. Shouts to my guy too. He, uh, Steve Joe was definitely, I didn't never labeled him as such, but he definitely was a person where I was just like. I like you're a child. You shouldn't be working in the industry, but you know enough <laughs> to where I think you can be molded into this. Yeah. And so he definitely was just like, he's like, you, you know, I'm trying to sign your band, but like, you know, have you ever thought about working in the industry? And at the time I was working at a record store. I was, you know, I was touring and like, I had a desire to work in the music industry, but I didn't have a vision for what that would look like. How old were you? I was about 20 at the time. Okay. So like I, yeah, I at, at that time I all, I'd also dropped out of, college to just basically pursue the touring band thing and i had a job at a record store where basically in between tours i would just go back there and work at the record store and it was amazing it was an amazing job really quick were your parents supportive of that or were they no horrible okay. horribly unsupportive when i say horribly unsupportive it's not like they were uh they were just actively trying to dissuade me from not dropping out of school or anything like that yeah because you're um, telling me you had like a pretty traditional good upbringing and yep. i know that like that can be because i mean up until very recently, college wasn't like a choice. Like it's a very like traditional yeah. path. So yeah, that's always interesting to me. Like uh, this being such an alternative culture uh, where parents fall on it. Yeah, so, totally. I mean, was that scary for you to like? It was to have that conversation with my mom. Was I was w one of the most difficult conversations I had because it was just like I went to like one year at San Diego State and then I went to a community college and I was just I was just killing time. You yeah. know, like it didn't matter. You felt it. You knew that this was your thing. Totally. And yeah. it it wasn't even so much like I knew I want. I knew I never was going to make a living off of the band I played in. I just I like I never had those illusions of grandeur. I never, sure. even though I saw friends that were accomplishing it to a certain extent, I never had the burning desire to be like I want to, like. I had I had the desire to take this as seriously as humanly possible. Yeah. But I never had the 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 thing being like this is my only thing. This is my only hope. That's that's very cool and like honest or like I don't know like it, that, to, that's me, interesting to me it was just to me. to me it was just practical because a lot of the time at that time too 
even though I saw, you know, many of our peers being quote unquote successful, mm-hmm. the idea of successful was just the fact that they could come home and pay their rent with whatever they made off. Like that's right. And, and it wasn't like there, it was still very hand to mouth. So mm-hmm. I didn't really feel, I just didn't, I just didn't feel like it was realistic, especially with like what, um, the style that we were playing, it just wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't in vogue at the time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think, I just didn't, I just had no vision beyond that. I had vision yeah. of taking it like at the, before Taken broke up, we were going to sign with uh, the militia group. Um, mm-hmm. and we were going to, you know, there was a lot of serious things that were going on for the band as far as like management and doing all this cool stuff. But, um, the, you know, the, the band fractured apart because people felt that pull to be like, I got to do something real. Like, you know, and I totally like completely understood. I was heartbroken at the time. Cause I was like, man, there's all this cool stuff we're about to do. We're about to sign with a new record label, all this other stuff. But, um, so yeah. century media though, but century media. So yeah, Steve Joe brought me in. I was doing, uh, yeah, I was doing a and R from pretty much the get go, um, signing bands, trying to figure out what that meant. Cause you know, there, are, I didn't know it at the time, but like there's two definitions of what a and R does where it's like, there's your traditional a and R person who's going out there, who's only focused on like signing the best artists matching them up with the, the right producer going into the studio and being like, oh, are you sure that song's the right one? Like there was that, yeah. that person. And then there was person, what I personally knew to be A&R, which was you're going out there, you're signing the bands. You were making sure you were, you know, their advocate at the record label. You were giving them all the potential resources to make them as successful as possible. But I, tr- the reason I signed these bands or whatever was to like, to trust them and to trust their art. Mm. I would be a sounding board. I would give advice when asked. Yeah. But to be presumptuous of being, especially too, because we're working in aggressive music. Yeah. It's not like we were working with pop stars who are 14 years old who needed like molding. These are people who are, yeah, whatever, you know, 17, 18 years old. But like at the same time, this was aggressive music and like signing them in the faith that what they're going to blossom into will be something that will be great in the future. Yeah. And that was the, and on top of that was also being able to like help build marketing plans and like know how to expose bands appropriately to the world. That's so cool. And I actually, I didn't know that about you and I, I want to stop and ask you a question because sure. I'd like to think that again, if anybody listening that's trying to like get their foot in the door and all that, I think that there's a lot of assumptions and maybe roles aren't clearly defined and it sounds like you had the exact right attitude towards being an A&R. Mm-hmm. So like for somebody listening that maybe isn't a, a project that hasn't signed yet or is starting now to deal with A&Rs and all that, like what would you say, like what, what defines a good A&R? Like what is something that an artist should know that an A&R does? Sure. Um, I definitely, I, I really do think that they are an advocate for your band at the record label because they are, the person who is talking to every component of everybody at the label from, you know, radio to marketing to, you know, digital sale, like everybody making sure that people are aware of what's happening with your band. They're the champion. Yeah. So I think that, you know, they're always, the the joke is, you know, it's like, oh, like, of course these people are like suits and like, you know, they work, they work at the label. Like they don't really understand. Yeah. And I always really liked the fact that it was just like, well, like, yes, you can say that about me because I work at a record label, but I was just like, dude, like three months ago, I was touring the same places as you were. So like, I really felt a kinship with these people who I was bringing in to sign to the record label because I'd be like, oh yeah, like I play in a band still and we're still touring or whatever. So like having that, that kinship was really, really important to me. But yeah, I, I definitely think taking the lead because 
people do. And the reason I bring that up is because it doesn't need to be an adversarial relationship. Like there are times where you have to have tough conversations, but you don't need to immediately go to this defensive mode about that. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, have that, that negative opinion, um, starting off where it's just like the, you know, the, the, the years and years of history of how bands get screwed over and like, you know, how majors do this and stuff. Like, of course, a lot of that is true. Yeah. But if you are approaching it with a fresh face and a fresh mentality behind it, um, you definitely don't have to bring that baggage along with you because it's like, well, what happened to one person doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen to you. Like they, these are statistically speaking, it's not going to be the same exact outcome. So you shouldn't approach it with the fact that it's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to be like all these other bands, you know? Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Thank you for that. Of course. Um, okay. So you're A&Ring, Century Media. Yep. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, at that time that was, I was touring with Taken, um, and I was, you know, signing bands and doing all that, learning how to work at a record label, um, learning how the moving parts, cause at that time Century Media, um, and the music industry had started to feel the decline, but mm. not like it, it was just kind of on the precipice. Like the so record sell, like, like this was 2000? like 2002, 2003. Okay. Um, 2004. I want to say 2004, 2005 is when the label started to first feel a shift from what I personally remember, yeah. where it was a matter of like, I just had less money to sign bands. Like the deals that I was presenting just weren't as aggressive. Um, we just physically saw records selling less and, you know, big box retailers just taking less and less. And so like we started to feel that shift and that's obviously when, you know, iTunes and digital uh, service provider, digital yeah, service providers were starting to become more of a thing. Um, so, but I mean, but at that time I had learned so much already. And so there was a component of it where, um, this was, I want to say it was around 2004 is when there, I woke up one morning, went into the record label and my boss had gotten a $2 million advance from our distributor to start a sub label called Abacus Recordings. Okay. And so he had always, he always had this vision to be able to start like a sort of punk hardcore adjacent thing to century media because century media tried and true metal like that's what they're you know primarily known for so i then was tasked to kind of like run this imprint and when i say run it wasn't like the buck stopped here but i was like all right like let's hire some staff like let's try to sign some bands so it's like I was, and I was 24. I was like, I had no idea what to do. And like, I had to like find office space. I'm like, I don't know how to find office space. Like I had to like get internet set up. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Like <laughs> it was a comedy of errors. Like it was comedy like me and a handful of friends that were just trying to like piece this together. Um, and you know, we, we were able to do certain successful things, but at the same time there was so much that advance went by very quickly because there was a lot of money being spent on other projects that were just like, you know, complete pie in the sky. Like what one of my bosses had an affiliation with Lou Perlman who managed in sync who they put out, they put out three, uh, reggaeton records, like world music records. Yes. Spent probably close to a million dollars putting out these three records and sold maybe 8,000 copies. Like it was just one of those things where it was like, Oh my gosh, like this is insane, but this is the music industry at that particular time. But anyways, um, so yeah, but just my time at Century Media was incredibly valuable and I learned so much just about the actual work of what it takes to get a record out and get a band signed. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So then you go from Century Media into... PETA. So I worked, I basically, yeah, I at that time, I started like... 
the music industry had changed so drastically. And I, you know, the Abacus imprint then got rolled back into Century Media because at that time it was like, why do you need to have imprints when realistically, like the music industry is shrinking? Like, yeah. so we all need to have, be, you know, all hands on deck for well, this. So again, you were kind of aware, like you kind of knew, like you saw it. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we saw it and we felt it. Um, and it was just a matter of like, I, I was really glad. I mean, I was the only employee that was like kind of part of that imprint that got rolled back into Century Media. Everybody else kind of went different directions, really successful directions too. Cause one, um, one of my old coworkers, Chris Waltman manages 21 pilots. Shit. Um, yeah. Just like an, an unbelievably cool dude. He was like our general manager, just a great guy to work with. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't like everyone fractured and was like completely unsuccessful afterwards. But, um, yeah, so I rolled back into Century Media, worked there for a couple of years, then got an offer to work at PETA, where it was basically like answering those questions that I was talking about earlier, where I was like, is this, is this fun? And like, ultimately, does this kind of appeal to like my ethics, where I'm like, you know, I've been vegan and vegetarian since I was 16 years old. Yeah. I still get to work within the music industry, but then I get to paint with a broader brush of working with people where it's just like, you know, one day I'd be working with like Pamela Anderson and like the next day Morrissey. And then the next day, you know, uh, you know, never shout, never like, it was just, yeah, I got to experience so much, so many more sides of the industry that I never would have been able to if I just worked at Century Media and only focused on this style of music. That's so cool. And again, that theme of like you just having that curiosity for mm-hmm. more than just one lane. Yeah. No, it, and it, it just, it ticked off that box where I was just like, oh yeah, like this is, this is totally an opportunity that I, I couldn't turn down. And so that was like, yeah, 2009, I want to say somewhere around there. Um, and so, yeah, they hired me. Um, and at that time I was able to, you know, work directly from home cause they, they have offices in LA and mm-hmm. Norfolk, Virginia, but, um, and I went into the office occasionally cause I managed a staff, but it wasn't like there was, um yeah, there was pressure for me to like be in the office. And so that started my like working from home life, which I was like, there are certain people who are cut out for that. And yeah. there are many people who are just like, I can't exist in that. Yeah. It, it, it has its own challenges. It does. Uh, Cause I've, I've done both and you kind of have to remind yourself to like be a human and like interact with people and go outside and get sunlight. And <laughs> totally. maybe, I mean, for me, sometimes I'm too hard on myself with discipline and don't take breaks or whatever. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. if you do have it, I think that you can get great benefit out of it. And totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can just, you can exist in your life a lot, um, a lot more readily. I mean, especially to like once I got married and like, you know, I mean, the fact oh. that I have a son, I'm able to exist in his life so much greater than I would be if I was like, all right, I'm chained to a desk and I, you know, I can't get home until like seven 30 after he's asleep. It's like, that's not, I'm afforded an opportunity to do that. So like, I'm going to embrace that as long as I possibly can. So, but yeah, Peter yeah. was great just because it, again, it expanded my horizons and got me working with a bunch of different people who, um, I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to like, again, like being helpful to them. I wouldn't yeah. have been able to be helpful to them if I was just like, Oh yeah, I'm at Century Media. Like I, I can't, I mean, I, I love, I would love to work with you, but like, there's just, I, I can't figure out a way to like make that happen. Right. Know? And as we're getting closer to being out of time and I, I find your story so interesting. So you go from PETA to then you start managing producers as well, right? Yep. Managing producers. Um, yeah, it was towards the, towards the end of me working at PETA. Um, and then it was like, yeah, then, uh, at that time when I was working at PETA, I started doing the Hunter Rogeles podcast. Um, okay. so they all kind of like commingled with one another. Mm-hmm. The podcast was just born out of my, my passion for the medium because, uh, basically technology and comedy podcasts started to really populate. Yeah. Uh, in the mid 2000s. Yeah. I got obsessed with it from a technology perspective. I'd always been interested in technology. Yeah. Um, so there's a guy named Leo Laporte. 
who had a radio show, or he has, still has a syndicated radio show, but he was talking about these things called podcasts on his radio show. It was like it was just like a tech call-in show where people yeah. would be like, oh, my computer's broken. Um, but then the podcast was amazing because basically he would just like cover news about like, oh, this is what's happening with Apple and like this is what's happening with, you know, Microsoft or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, and I was just like, this is so cool. Like you would, you would physically download them to your computer. Yeah. You would then have to dump it into your iPod. And I would listen to, on my iPod. Precisely. Yeah. 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 So uh, I just became obsessed with the medium. And then uh, there was a comedian named Mark Marin who's, you know, one of the, the basically forefathers of like the modern interview podcast or whatever. This show is called WTF with Mark Marin. And I started to listen to his show and I just loved the conversations he was having with people in comedy, um, people who, you know, in pop culture and movies and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but he would it, like, it'd be one of those things where it'd be like an hour long conversation and not talk about like the current movie that that person's promoting. And I was just yeah. like, this is great, dude. Because it's like, that's, you feel like you're actually having a conversation to similar, like, you know, why you enjoy doing your podcast so much is exactly what I heard in his show. Yeah. And so I was like, I got to do this in some capacity. I enlisted a couple of my friends. Um, we started it. It was called, you know, First World Problems. If you go all the way back in the archives of the 100 Words podcast feed. Yeah. Um, it just became really, really hard to balance all of these schedules because we'd have my two friends and then a guest. Yeah. And it, it was just so, so hard. So then finally, I was like, after a couple months of us not publishing an episode, I was like, guys, would you mind if I did this on my own? Um, and my friends, Joey and Scott, were like, yeah, like you know, we you were you were the one primarily driving the ship, so like, sure, you know, yeah. we don't have a problem with that. Uh, but I wanted to ask their blessing just because I, you know, I love them as humans. Very kind of you. That's cool. So then, uh, yeah, then Hundred Words Podcast was born, and I basically was just like, all right, I'm going to do this on a weekly basis. Interview people who have you know been involved in the scene, whatever that may mean, as long as they have some sort of you know DIY background or culture. They yeah. don't have to be doing it currently. Yeah, but they have should have been touched by this in some like really meaningful way to where it's like even if they're not working in the music industry or playing in bands or whatever that they they take those principles like there will my favorite interviews are with the people what I like to call secret punks where it's like these are people who are just like you know like doing a job or whatever or like doing something cool in the creative community yeah but you don't necessarily see that they were connected to this secret punk it's my favorite so it's fucking my favorite. good yeah yeah so those and yeah i've been doing that now for close to seven years and it's just like you know what's funny is I didn't have that word, but yeah. that's what I saw you as. And I didn't, know, I didn't know how to say it yeah. because I was like, there's something about this guy. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I'm glad secret I... punk. You're a secret punk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're it's... my secret punk episode. That's great. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I think the, um, yeah, it's just, it's just so much fun to dive into these conversations with people and, you know, yeah, really get to know who they are. But yeah, it's really, really fun. And I, I just, I love that. And like, again, I was telling you before this started, like I am newly and quite literally obsessed with podcasting because I would listen to it and it was so cool. I just never really thought about like doing one on your own. And it's always been so out there of just like, yeah, anybody can do it. Yeah. And like the little steps that it takes to figure out like how to get it yeah, online, all that, like yeah, yeah. all that, but like just getting there and doing it, uh, it's it's such a leap. So my uh, my I'm curious that you've been doing it now for so long. What are some of the things that have stood out to you that you've really loved about it? Or like, has there if anybody's listening that's curious about starting their own podcast? Like, I saw that you tweeted something. I think today yeah. that I found it like really uh, profound. I guess yet okay. I loved it where you're like every label should have a podcast. Absolutely. So like you have experience in the game. 
what have you found to be the best parts of it? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I, I feel, I feel so passionate about this medium just because it's, um, just like music, it's, it's intimate, you know, each person has their own intimate relationship with audio. When you're putting music in your ears, it's like, there's literally no barrier. You're putting it next to your brain. It's going right into it. And, um, I, the, the medium of podcasting is so important just because it's able to document people's stories, whether it's like in a simple interview, whether it's in like a narrative podcast, um, there's so much that can be done there from that perspective. And so all I've leaned into with my own podcast is just being able to give, I really view this as like, not only as like a document of a particular scene where people, you know, if people are spending, you know, like an hour and a week, hour a week with me that they will be able to contextualize a lot of these bands, all these artists in relation to not only one another, but the time that they existed. Um, you know, if they, if they're no longer playing or the time that they are currently existing, like, you know, I had a great conversation. I usually don't do follow-ups, but, um, I had Brendan from counterparts on recently and I'm, well, I'm going to publish it in the next couple of weeks, but just talking to him about like, did you, um, you know, like you're a different person than when I first met you and like, you know, just how his evolution is as a person being able to like, you know, exist in a band, um, and being able to like reckon with the fact that like, Oh, people like your band now, as opposed to like when we talked six years ago. Yeah. Um, fuck, that's such a cool concept. It was really, fuck, really, that's cool. It was really, really fun to hear. And t- t- for him to be able to like, uh, to speak on that and be able to be f- ultimately feel comfortable to speak about that in a space where it's like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I'm not sitting here trying to, um, you know, get, uh, get the traffic and get the downloads and like speak about something controversial. It's just like, dude, we're friends. I have yeah. the space. I have yeah. the audience. How about you express this? So I think to me, that's really, um, what I've learned and what I've leaned into the most. And frankly, it's like in relation to, record labels and podcasts and stuff like that. Like there is a podcast is just another channel. It's just another promotional channel for the thing that you do, which is releasing music, yeah. releasing stories about yeah. that particular music. And there's no reason like, and it doesn't need to be this overly ambitious plan where you're just like, all right, do we're going to release like, you know, seven episodes a week or whatever. It's like, as long as you have a plan in place and you've got someone, whether it's like someone at the label or you're working with somebody on the outside of the label, just to be able to like, take those baby steps to be able to create something that's like cool and ultimately is going to give your artists and, or whatever it is that you're focusing on, um, more context and more ability to tell your story. Cause like, dude, there are certain labels where it's just like, it's really easy to look at rise records and just be like, Oh, this is kind of like a, I don't know, like a trashy fashion metal court, like whatever. Like there's a lot of easy targets that you can look at with rise records. But if you trace it all the way back to like when they started and you're just like, Oh yeah, like it started as a, a hardcore punk label funded by uh, Kevin Seconds, the vocalist of Seven Seconds, like one of the most legendary punk hardcore bands. No one knows that. I did not know that. Right, and so it's like the only re- the only reason I know that is because of having you know friends and discussions and like being able to piece all this together. Yeah. Um. But that's why it, it, it I just feel and it doesn't need to be like this stupid infomercial about your record label. Yeah. It can just be a way to tell a story that's obviously controlled by you, and it's not just like. Oh yeah, I got, well, you know, yeah, whatever. Alternative Press did like a, you know, oral history on our label. It's like that's fine. It's like yeah. no, that's not that. I mean, nothing is permanent, but like that is very not permanent. Yeah, I feel you. And to add to that, I think that like things get better when more people are educated, just yes. in a very broad scope. So if you can positively educate people and inspire people or whatever, I think more people go to take action. More people can think and act with a 
better sense of knowledge and that's just better. Yeah. And I, I, that's what draws me to podcasting is like in a world of 15 second Instagram clips, this is where like you can actually learn and, and become more educated and in totally. any specific thing you're interested in. Absolutely. Which is there's, unreal. Yeah. You can, there's, there's no matter what you're into, there's going to be a podcast that will not only scratch your itch of curiosity, but yeah. then take you even further down that rabbit hole yeah. of obsession. Yeah. It's like, and that's, and that's why it's like I the parallels between you know starting a band and starting a podcast. It's like it's one to one. You just like it, it's the same exact principle, same exact idea. You don't ask permission. You have no idea what you're doing. You're gonna be terrible at it for a while, yes. and then you start. Then you finally start to get feel a little more comfortable with it, and you know what you're doing better. And it just yeah, it's such a beautiful medium that um, the more people, not the more people that dive into it and experiment with it and like take it seriously and not just be like, you know, cause there's something like pod T where it's like someone jumps into it is doing it for two months and then like bails on it, you know? And like, I understand like yeah. that happens. Life yeah. gets in the way, but people that kind of like give themselves like, all right, dude, I'm going to do this for a year. Mm-hmm. And then how you feel about it at the end of the year. Yep. That's fine. Yep. But give yourself more time to be able to like try to see how this thing like can fit in your life. Cause you'd be surprised at how amazing, the conversations that you could have, not only from a selfish perspective like we're doing right now, but then how that can impact people who you have no idea who are consuming this or listening to it. It's so beautiful. I love that so much. I think that says it so well. So then the last, last piece is uh, because I feel like you have such great knowledge and all of that, and I would really hope that anybody listening to this has taken something away from it. Um, I guess it's a two-part thing. One, if you could go back to any part of your life where you had any type of uncertainty or, you know, you've done so much, is there an underlying theme or is there one piece of advice that you would give to yourself at any part that you didn't have certainty? Mm. Um, I, there, I, to be completely honest, like, no, there was, there was no, I I don't know if it's just something that I've never had in my, my brain. Um, but I've just, I really have never been afraid to like be embarrassed or fail. Like no matter how, uh, unreasonable or silly I may feel if I am doing something, um, I usually take, I am not a risky person from the perspective of I'm going to do something that I just like know will like unequivocally will just like no one will be interested in this. Hmm. I usually take, I'm pretty measured in the, my approaches to things. Like I don't, um, you know, on a whim, like that's, I mean, I've really only had a couple of jobs and like, they've been pretty consistent. I'm not continually like looking for the next opportunity. If something comes up, then I, then I vet it appropriately. Um, but there hasn't been there, there's always doubt and ebbs and flows in regards to like the work you're doing and like whether or not it's valuable. Um, but then if you actually like sit down and like pay attention to the thing, then you realize like, oh, like there is a lot of valuable things that are being that are, that are getting kicked off from this, whether it's like, oh, like the people that I work with are great. And like, they respect the work that I do. And like this thing that I put out, like, oh yeah, like, cool. It affected these people in these ways. So I mean, for me, it was never a matter of like having to push through, um, those like immovable barriers of self-doubt. I get why they exist in other people's heads. And I, I wish that there was a way to like remove that. But the thing that I always really lean into is what we were talking about earlier of just the, the notion that, you're going to be terrible at things for a long time and you cannot let that stop you from whatever it is you're trying to do. I think that's the biggest hurdle that people feel like they have because it's like everybody to your point earlier about social media and everybody feeling like they need to be perfect. Um, 
like no like no one no one is everybody is like a completely broken and flawed individual we all have ways of masking it we all have ways of presenting it to the world uh, but it doesn't mean that that failure and everything else exists everybody feels like an imposter you know I was, I was listening to a podcast with like Howard Stern and Conan, Conan O'Brien and both of them are extremely talented and extremely accredited individuals like household names unreal and they're both talking about like how they feel like they're frauds you know how they feel like dude at any point this could just go away and it's like everybody that is putting themselves out there feels like that so you doing it on such a small level of like I'm going to put on a podcast or like this I'm going to start a band or whatever it's like dude the, you're going to feel this forever. So you just have to be able to try to like mitigate that and try try to not like lean into that voice and just be like, well, like if these other people are feeling this, then I know that I'm, if you, if you weren't feeling that, then you'd probably be doing something wrong, you know? So it's fucking beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you. That is of the course. best, best advice you could have given there. And then the last piece is like, again, because you are so knowledgeable, you've been doing it for so long. If there is anybody out there listening that, uh, would want to pick your brain, uh, how do they get a hold of you? Or what? Oh, yeah. It's very simple across almost every single social media platform, X Purpose X. It's been my, it was my AOL instant messenger screen name since I was 15 years old. And I just kept that across every, uh, every mechanism. But yeah, people can email me. Uh, it's very, very easy to find me on the internet. Um, cool. so yeah, I love talking to people and whatever, Whatever questions they may have, I will do my best. Like I, I literally respond to every email. There's, if I don't respond to an email quickly, it's usually because, um, yeah, there's, there's like some measured response. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to hit that person back with. But, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you can find me. Just Google Ray Harkins, and you, I, I'm one of the first results. So that's yeah, incredible. And easily. good on you for like always giving back and having that attitude because yeah. I think that that's another timeless lesson that just will always win. Yeah, if you're yeah. responsive to people, it's just like the, you treat others the way you want to be treated like I, even if you're providing you know something that is like you know i had a person being like hey could i submit my band to be you know on the podcast and i was like i don't like i responded to them i was like i don't accept submissions but like you know like thanks for thinking of me thanks for thinking of the show like you know i just don't i don't accept like unsolicited stuff like i try yeah. to be targeted in my approach i'm not going to put on a baby band that i've never heard of and no i'm not friends with like i'm not yeah. just doing that out of the you know the yeah. for some random reason it's just like i want to have an interaction with a person um and so totally. yeah i respond to everybody yeah that's that's so great um Thank you for doing this. It was great, man. I, Thank you. I really like. I knew. I knew <laughs> that there was something there, um, but this was this was incredible. Perfect. I'm, I'm very stoked. Well, me too. Thank you. Cool. <laughs> so there you have it, Ray Harkins. What a great episode. I really, really loved that one. I love the fact that we didn't know each other all that well before the episode started, and just like the amount of care and how genuine he is, like, you know, being down to talk to all these people and like, he's been doing this for so long and I don't think that you can force that, you know, like that's truly somebody who's so passionate about what they do. And I think that that passion and that curiosity has, was a common theme in his story where he just kept going with it. So I love lessons like that. I was extremely inspired after that episode. Um, if you haven't heard his podcast, you need to go listen to it. A hundred words or less. Uh, he's interviewed so many people in music. The podcast has been going for, I mean, again, like I, I think it's seven years now. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of really, really good guests and a lot of great wisdom on there. So 
That's the podcast. His social media is at xpurposex. And of course, I'm at Andrew underscore FTW. If you like the episode, please let us know. Uh, Please share it, all that good stuff. Uh, I'm signing out. I'll be back next week. Have a good one.